Well, welcome here to Jericho Ridge. Uh, my name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho. And uh, just as we get started this morning, we're going to play a little game together that I'm going to need your help for. And I know we have a lot of people here at Jericho who are teachers, who are linguists, who are really good at this kind of stuff. So the, what I need you to do is think of a difficult word to pronounce in English, all right? So if maybe you grew up and English was not your first language that you spoke, what, as you learned English, was a difficult word for you to say? Or just name a word that you think, I've always had trouble pronouncing this word in English. Ken's got one, he's got a big smile on his face. Aluminum, okay, aluminium to our British friends. <laughs> now my spelling is not aluminum, okay. All right, what else? Schedule, okay, yeah, there you go. Okay, what else? Okay, uh, indubitably, whoa, I don't even know how you spell that. Indubitably, something like that, all right, not really. Okay, Emma. Preposterous, wow, yeah, totally. Preposterous. Taurus. Man, okay, I agree. Okay, Deb. Phenomenon. Yeah, right? With the P H E O N E something O N. I don't know, phenomenon. They're harder to spell than to say. I can say them, I just can't spell them. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. A E O. What? Nano me? I don't know. Something, okay. <laughs> something from the, fi yeah, Josh. Hyperbole. Hyperbole. Oh, yeah, right. Hyperbole, yeah. I'm sure there are like rules of grammar that govern some of how we pronounce these things and then we break them. Larry. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apopolex. Spell it for me. <laughs> Something like Okay. I don't know. What else? What else is tricky? Abominable? Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you guys are, ooh, you're really testing it now. So, as a person from the UK, help us understand, why do you pronounce it that way? <laughs> I thought there'd be a more sophisticated answer than that, but that's probably true. All right, so... Um, they do polls, right? The uh, independent uh, newspaper in the UK and Reader's Digest did a poll. So here are their top 10 hardest words to pronounce in English. So uh, the first one that they said, number 10, is rural. Rural. If you're a non-English speaker, that R, especially the more R's you put into it, into a sentence, butt up more R's against each other. So if you say, I want to be a juror on a rural brewery robbery case, <laughs> that is a difficult sentence for a new Canadian to learn. 
So, number nine. It's an eight syllables. What do you think it says? Okay, when you separate it out, just break it out. Ortho, rhino, larynthologist. It's an ear, note, ear nose and throat doctor, so they just call themselves ENTs for, for short, because that's way easier than try ear, nose, throat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So literally from the Latin for the ears, and then the nose, and then the throat. So that's, that's a tricky one. Um, here's one. Colonel. It doesn't, it doesn't follow the rules. It actually follows French pronunciation rules, not English ones. Uh, another one, penguin. Penguin. How do you get the gu in sound? Uh, sixth. Sixth. Isthmus. Right, a point of land. Uh, an enemy. There you go. Uh, squirrel. <laughs> More of those tricky R's. And then, how would you say this? Some would say drought, some would say draft. Why, right? So it's a tricky one to figure out. That's draft. And then, the hardest word that independent decided, and it's supposed to be pronounced, apparently, Worcestershire sauce. Worcestershire sauce. Worcestershire sauce. Huh. Apparently because of where it comes from in the UK and then I don't know. I don't know why Shire gets sure but that's apparently how you're supposed to say it. So there you go. You learned something new in church today. How to say Worcestershire sauce. <laughs> All right. And you guys have your own good list of words here that are tough to pronounce. Um, but the reason we did this is I actually think there's three words in the English language that are harder to pronounce or harder to say than any of these words. And they're complicated, but I have a difficult time saying them. And they're these three words, I need help. Difficult words for us to say. I don't know about you, I find it difficult to ask for help when I need it. Because asking for help means that somehow I'm admitting weakness, it means that I don't have an answer to something, and I like to be seen as a person who has an answer to something. I like to be seen as, I like to be the helper, not the one in need of help. And so for me, three of the most difficult words to say in the English language are, I need help. And now, when I say that, I'm not talking, of course, about, oh, I need help with my math homework, or I need help looking for advice, planning a holiday, or something like that. I'm talking about that very vulnerable place of being where you come to the end of your personal resources, and you have no idea where to turn to and how things are going to work out, and you have to say to somebody else or a group of people, I need your help. It's a tough place to actually say those three things, those three words. Uh, and I've been there. It's a scary and unsettling place. And some of you know some of the stories uh, of this. And I think back to the very first year of Jericho Ridge. It was uh, 13 years ago. And our daughter, 
was uh, born in that year, and then suddenly when she was uh, just two, less than two months old, she was taken to intensive care at the hospital with severe respiratory issues, and this was right between Christmas and New Year's, and we were in the process of moving out of our house. We had to be out by the 31st, and we were building a new house, which was not yet completed, and so everything was in chaos. Absolutely everything was in chaos. And we showed up at a friend's door and said, I need help. Like we, we have no idea where to go and what to do. And I can remember just feeling in those moments so shaky and so destabilized and every part of life felt really fragile and out of control. And all the questions, like, how could this happen? And we have to be out of the house. How is that even reasonably going to be possible? And then we got to get moved into this new house, which isn't done. And that's going to be complicated. And we're in the hospital most days and nights. So who's supervising the construction site? And what if we park the moving truck outside and it gets stolen and all of our worldly possessions are, are gone? And like, I just, that, that whole experience for me was that time when it was, it was just so destabilizing that it, we needed help. And I can remember a, a few dear friends and people at this church stepping in and loving and helping us at that time. I can remember clearly Pastor Wally coming up to the hospital and just sitting with us for a long period of time and just being present in the way that he's so good at and being very wise and just praying for us. And it was such a gift. And I can remember uh, Curtis and Sue uh, Cottrell coming and gently prying from my hands the keys for the moving van and driving it and then coming to Jericho Ridge on a Sunday morning and saying, listen, uh, gang, we're, we're going to go and help. Like the Sumners are in a bit of a bind here. And so if you're able, after church, we're going to head over and we're going to unload the truck and help them move in. And so when we arrived home from the hospital, uh, like every bed had sheets on it, every cupboard had plates in it, uh, my toothbrush was in the right drawer in the upstairs bathroom, like it was such a gift to be helped so ably uh, by the church in, the ch in our time of need. And, and in the state of sleep deprivation, I just remember being so humbled and so overwhelmed at the same time. And I remember walking away from that experience and going, you know, it's kind of a good thing to be in need of help because when you have people around you that will step up and help you, it's such a gift. And, and it's such an incredible um, thing to be a part of a family and a community like this that loves well in those times and in those seasons. And many of you have your own stories of that as well. And today's encounter in the book of Second Kings is about a woman who's in a place of need and she cannot get it sorted on her own. And her need is significant, and her need of help is significant. And so we're going to learn something today about uh, uh, accountability, about vulnerability, and about God's character in this encounter. So turn with me in your Bibles or uh, on your phones. There's a Bible in the Jericho Ridge app to 2 Kings, and we're going to be in uh, chapter 4 this morning. And the words will come up on the side screens for you if you need it. And we're going to look at the life uh, through the summer. We've been looking at the life of the prophet Elisha. And some of the strange things in his work and ministry that happen. And in 2 Kings chapter 4, 
uh, we have this encounter with the widow starting in verse one. One day, the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and she cried out to him, my husband who served you is dead and you know how he feared the Lord. But now a creditor has come threatening to take my two sons away as slaves. What can I do to help you? Elisha asked. Tell me what you have in your house. Nothing at all except for a flask of oil, she says. So the, the thing we need to understand here is really how precarious and how dangerous of a position this woman was in. Her husband uh, was part of the group of prophets that Elisha was like a mentor to, and he had died. And in the ancient world, no one was more vulnerable than a widow. They had no one to provide for them in any way. Now, this widow has two sons still living at home. We don't know how old they are. But eventually, probably her prospects could have turned around if her two sons had grown up and had been able to find employment and be able to provide for their family and for their mother in some way. But the challenge here is that this family has amassed a significant amount of debt, probably just out of trying to just get by, living expenses. Like not, she's not out living and splurging on all kinds of stuff. She has no income. And so it's probably just that she's been having to do everything that she can to get by. But this has placed her in a very difficult place financially. But now the creditor has come knocking on the door and demanding payment and saying, all right, you got nothing to give? Fine, I will take your two sons, the only hope that you have for the future. I'll take them and I'm going to sell them into slavery and that should about cover your debts. And if this happens and her sons are sold off as slaves, she is completely out of options. She has no recourse whatsoever. And so she's in an incredibly, incredibly difficult space. So she goes to Elisha, the prophet, and he asks, what can I do to help you? More specifically, he asks her a question, which seems a little bit odd. What do you have in the house? And she says, well, I, I, I'm literally down to my last little tiny flask of olive oil. And that's all I have. And here, there's a principle in this that I don't want us to miss because it shows up a few other places in Scripture. And that is, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. It's a principle of accountability. God will not hold you accountable for something that you do not possess. Aisha says, what's, what do you have? What, what's, what are your, what are you, what's in your possession right now that you could do something with? And you see, sometimes when we get into trouble and when we come to a place of need in our lives, we look around us and we think like we see a solution outside of ourselves. We're in financial stress and we think to ourselves, oh, you know what would be great? If only I had the money that Jimmy Patterson had. Wouldn't that be awesome? Then I could pass this stupid mortgage stress test. Or we think to ourselves, you know, oh, you know, 
if only God, you made me smarter, like so-and-so. Like then I would have no problems with school. Why don't you make me good at math, like my sister or my cousin? See, here's the problem with that line of thinking. God is not going to hold you accountable for something that you do not possess. So on the day of final accounts, on the day of final judgment, God's not gonna say to you, hey, Brad, why didn't you use Jimmy Patterson's money better? No, that's not the question that's on the table. God's gonna hold you accountable for what he's entrusted to you. The phrase, what is in your hand, shows up a number of other places in Scripture. One of the places is in the story of Moses. When Moses was being asked by God to lead the people of Israel out of slavery, and Moses has so many excuses as to why he can't do it. I'm not a good speaker. You know, I I just, what if I go back? You know, I have actually a criminal record there. This is really not going to work out well for me. And God simply asks him, Hey, Moses, what do you have? I get that you have lots of excuses as to why you can't do that. What's actually in your hand? And Moses says, a shepherd's staff. And God says to him, I could work with that. I want you to shepherd my people out of slavery to freedom. And God takes all of the gifts and the experiences and the character qualities and that he placed in Moses and through Moses, God accomplishes incredible and miraculous things. But Moses has to come to that place where God says, what's in your hand? Are you willing to use it? Or another place in uh, John chapter six where the disciples have done some poor planning. Jesus is on uh, teaching, he's here on the earth, he's teaching, and the disciples have planned the teaching conference slightly too far away from the food service options. (laughs) And so people are famished and they can't continue to actually uh, be taught in any meaningful way. And so this logistical faux pas, the disciples start fighting. Why didn't you think about this? We should have had catering. This is ridiculous. And Jesus says, what do we have here? Like, let's just take some inventory. And they say, oh, this is boy here. His mom packed him a lunch. We didn't think about that. Five barley loaves, two fish. That's all we got. And Jesus says, I can work with that. And Jesus takes these young man's humble offering and multiplies it and feeds the masses of people with it. What's in your hand? What do you have? So here's a question for you and I to think about. What are the resources that you have that God has entrusted you with? See, those are the things that you're gonna be held accountable for. God's not gonna ask you about somebody else's resources and management of the gifts, talents, time, abilities that he's placed in your possession. That's your responsibility and you'll be accountable to that before the Lord one day. And so those are the things that God can use. What's in your hand? What resources do you have available to you? God's not gonna hold you accountable for something you don't possess, but he will hold you accountable for what he has entrusted you. Maybe you have a creative gift that needs to be contributed to the world. Maybe your gift is leadership, lead well. Maybe your gift is hospitality, practice it regularly, liberally. You get the picture. What are the gifts, what are the skills, what are the things that God has given to you 
that you will be held accountable for. Elisha says to her, what's in your, in your hand? What do you have? So back to our story in 2 Kings 4. She says, well, all I have is this little flask of oil. Like I just, I don't know what, why you even are asking me this question, Elisha? And Elisha says to the woman, okay, that'll, that's good. We can work with that. Borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors. Then go into your house with your son, shut the door behind you, pour olive oil from your flask into the jars, setting each one aside when it is filled. So kids, I'm going to need some help from you uh, today. Throughout the room, I have spread some Tupperware and some Rubbermaid containers. And so you're going to be like the woman's two sons who are going out to the neighbors to try and get those containers for me. So uh, adults, you might need to look under your chairs. And if you have a Tupperware container under there, we'll just pretend that this is a piece of ancient pottery because I thought this would be slightly safer than trying to amass a bunch of those. And so kids, if you can go and find somebody that has a, a Rubbermaid and can you ask them, please, can I borrow that from you? Please, can I, and then bring it up here, all right? We'll just put them across the front of the stage here. So let's try and get as many of those pieces as you can. All right, Hannah's bringing one up here. Oh, this is the Sumner family popcorn container that we, yeah, that's right, brilliant. This has been missing for a while, actually. I'm glad this is back. Good. All right, Emma's got some that she's coming forward with. Okay, can somebody else help? Who else? She's got one over there. All right. Who else is going to go do some collection? All right. Well, you guys are making Emma do all the work. Oh, wow. All right. <laughs> She's coming. She's making her contribution. Who else has got holders up if you've got one? All right. Oh, we got some more coming from the back. Okay, we got one, two, three, four, five. Okay, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Okay, that's good. I think we've got all of our containers. That's perfect. Brilliant. All right, so we're just going to help and pretend that these containers are the ones that the widow borrowed and that her sons went out and, and collected from. So if I'm the widow at this point, I'm asking a couple of questions. Number one, like when my sons are at the door knocking and the neighbor says, yeah, what do you need it for? What am I telling them? Because that information isn't given to us here. So she's going out and they're doing all of this collection and then they're supposed to bring them all back and they're supposed to shut the door and then the only instruction she has is just start dumping out from your container into these extra containers. And like, I would be a little bit puzzled if I was this widow and her sons. Now, obviously in the ancient world, you know, this, uh, the, the jars that they would have had are also pretty valuable things. So uh, coming to a neighbor and just sort of grabbing that from them, if they had something in it or needed use of it, is kind of a little bit of an odd activity. And then she's got this olive oil, uh, and they, they, olive oil is a really valuable commodity in the ancient world. Because think about the resources necessary to have enough 
bushes and trees to grow the olives and then they need to be pressed and then the liquid needs to be captured and then put into these jars and sold. And think about like how much we pay for just a little jug of olive oil at the grocery store today. So this is not a cheap uh, uh, thing that's going on, especially if she's borrowing these containers from her neighbors that are empty. And again, why is she gathering all of these? She's interrupting them. She's, she's stealing valuable time from them. And, and just because the prophet told her that she should do it, go into your house, shut the doors, and just start pouring out. Now, about this time, I'm probably thinking, the prophet's a little bit crazy. I'm not 100% sure what's going on here. Because the math works like this. I can borrow all that I want, but like, Standard volume issue, if I take the olive oil in here and I pour it into the container here, the same amount of olive oil is going to come from this container into this container. This one's empty, this one's full. Now I have a problem because I've just dirtied my neighbor's container with olive oil and like now my jug is empty. So what in the world are we doing here? But the widow actually is faithful and obedient and you know, she actually just starts pouring and starts taking her jar and emptying it into all of these other containers and these jars. And it makes no sense whatsoever, and yet she does it. She did as she was told, verse 5 says. Her sons kept bringing jars to her, bringing jars. She filled one after the other after the other. Soon every container was full to the brim. And she shouted, bring me another jar, bring me another jar. And the son says, there aren't any more. And that, at that point, the olive oil stopped flowing. Just an incredible, miraculous evidence of God's generous provision. Out of this one little jug, the olive oil is multiplied and multiplied and multiplied until every single container that she just borrowed is full to the brim. And here's where we see the second principle that I've already highlighted for us today. And that is that need for us as proud, independent individuals to actually learn to ask for help. Because think about what the widow had to do. She had to humble herself and admit her need to multiple people. First, she has to get real with herself and say, I'm in real trouble here. Secondly, she has to go public with that. She goes and finds the prophet and says, we're in trouble here. Our family is in trouble here. I don't know what her thought process was, was around that. Did she expect a scolding? Said, well, why don't you manage your money better? How come you got yourself into this trouble? This is ridiculous. Go and get yourself out of it. She has to come clean with her sons, who she sends on this errand, and say, boys, we're in a real tight spot here. You know that knock on the door? That was for you. You, know, you could be leaving this house and being sold into an abysmal condition if we don't get some help here. She had to admit that to her sons. Imagine having that conversation with your kids. And then she has to admit her need to her neighbors. Why are you borrowing this stuff? <laughs> Gets a little crazy. She has to get a little more vulnerable than most of us are willing to be. She has to let other people in on her needs and her challenges. Now, I don't know how that works for you, but it's a tricky thing to be vulnerable with people. Sometimes it's even harder to be vulnerable with people who are close to us. It can be humbling as a parent to say to your kids, I made a mistake. 
or I don't know. And sometimes I wonder if we as parents shield our kids from the harsher realities of life. And we think to ourselves, all oh, the troubles we're having as a family, you know, I don't need to know about that. That's like an adult conversation, which in some cases might be wise and true. But sometimes we shield our kids from the processes of our own struggles and fears. And in doing that, we actually shield them from learning authentic experiences about themselves and about God and about the hard parts of life. So if you're praying and asking God and saying, God, I need a new job. I need you to provide for our family. Like, why not involve your kids in that process? Or a new house. Let the kids pray with you about that. If you're making uh, a decision as a family, a tough decision about a new direction, pray about it together. And trust that God will speak to your kids just like God will speak to you. God doesn't just work with adults. So this widow has to involve her sons in the conversation. And think about if she would have done none of that, done all the collection herself, done all of the pouring herself, left the sons completely out of it, they would have missed out on seeing their faith stretched in incredible and powerful ways because of what she did. And then she involves her community as well. And they get to see this place of need in her life. And our culture just rails against this, this sense of vulnerability, this sense of letting other people into places of weakness and need in our own lives. But there's profound gifts that come to us when we're willing to do that. Author Brene Brown says it this way in her book, Daring Greatly. Courage starts with showing up and letting ourselves be seen. Because true belonging only happens when we present our authentic and imperfect selves to the world. Belonging happens when we come not with all of our shiny pieces put all together, but when we come in a place of vulnerability to the world. So here's a question for us to think about. What needs do you have that you could choose to make known to others? What needs do you have that you could choose to make known to others? One of the things I still find profoundly difficult is to let people know what I need. See, I like being the one that helps others. I like being the one that receives prayer requests and promises to pray for them, not the one that needs people to pray for me. I draw, and maybe you do, some of my identity from being in a helping profession, they call it or a position of helping other people. And I find it very difficult to say to other people in an authentic and real way, you know what, I need your help. There's an old hymn that I didn't understand as a kid and I think I have even more difficulty with now. And the words are, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother, not my sister, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's tough to get to that place. To say, no, it's not about those other people. I actually have a need. Even sometimes sharing a prayer request with another person can feel like an act of vulnerability. 
because you're saying in some ways, I have a need in this area of my life. And so sometimes when we get into a church context, we keep things pretty surfacey, prayer requests, we make them safe prayer requests about well-accepted and understood areas of our lives, and we keep it pretty shallow. Friends, that's not courage. And it certainly is not one of our core values of authentic community. So you can choose to come to a place like Jericho weekend after weekend. People ask you, how's it going? You can say, great, even if that's not the truth. You can pretend for 90 minutes. You can go to a few events outside of a Sunday morning, get to know some people, help with Wagner Hills, even go on one of our short-term teams to a place like Guatemala or Tanzania. And so you can actually develop a persona and style yourself as the helper in a community like this. But there comes a time in everyone's life where you need to own it and say to somebody else those three difficult words in the English language, I need help. I have a need for you and for others. It's actually why we have prayer ministry teams here at Jericho every single weekend because we're actually driving a stake in the ground around that particular issue and saying our value of authentic community is that's one way we live it out. It is not okay for you to come and simply sit here week after week after week and pretend that you're okay. If you want to be a part of this community and you want to be a part of what it means to struggle with each other, Bear each other's burdens, Galatians 6 says, and that's a fulfillment of the law of Christ. And that means that other people have to know your burdens to be able to bear them. It means saying to other people, I need help. I need help with my parenting. I need help to beat this habit. I'm struggling in this area of addiction. I need help unpacking how the pain of my past keeps to keep coming up and impacting my, presence, uh, my present. I cannot do this alone. And friends, this is the powerful truth of the gospel. It's the glorious truth of the gospel that the heart of the gospel actually is the message that we cannot do this alone. You and I cannot do this life alone. That you and I and everyone needs Jesus. And the most profound but most difficult choice that you can make as an individual, maybe the hardest words that you can ever say as an individual is to come to the place of surrender and saying to God, God, I need you. I cannot do this on my own. I surrender. I'm done living life on my own terms. I choose to yield. I choose to let you be in charge. And that's the prayer that actually opens the door to everything and so many people here at Jericho have discovered that. What's on the other side of that prayer of surrender? And if you've never done that today, if you've never actually come to that place where you've said to God, I need you, I want to open my life to you in a fresh way. In a few minutes when we move into worship and song and prayer, I want you to come and you'll know that today is your day to make that decision and to pray that prayer because you'll feel this internal wrestling and struggle and you'll want in everything in you not to do it. But you'll feel at the same time just compelled and drawn irresistibly by the work of the Holy Spirit to that place 
of surrender. And if that's you today, it's gonna feel like a battle, but that's the spirit of God calling you to come and you need to say yes to that. Your pride will persist and say, I don't need help from anybody, let alone God. But what you need to know is that you could choose to make that known to God and others around you. Choose courage, choose vulnerability. Show up, let yourself be seen. You'll be surprised and amazed at the results. And that's how the encounter of this widow actually ends. She pours her little vial out on every container and every container is filled up to the brim. And then when she told the man of God what had happened in verse seven, he said to her, all right, this is the new plan. Sell the olive oil because it's valuable. Pay your debts and you and your sons can live on what is left over story has an awesome, incredible ending for this woman, and this is where we find our third and final principle, and that is that God is so incredibly generous to us. There's a lavishness to God's miraculous provision for this woman. You see, God could have chosen to provide for this family in any way that God wanted to do that. And yet God chooses to do it through a lavish generosity and a reckless generosity and a loving generosity. See, when she sells the oil, it's not just enough to cover her debts. There's enough for her left over to live on. Like God's provision for her is radically generous and large. Her future is secured and her sons are saved. Her place in the community is restored. Imagine the stories that she gets to tell when she brings back these borrowed containers to their owners. You'll never guess what God did for me, she says. God provided for me. Neighbors, how many, how many jars did you collect? One, was, it, was my jar the only jar? No, there were so many jars. I borrowed from as many as we filled the whole house and we sold it. God was so incredible. Where did it come from? It came from one little jug of olive oil and the faith of a widow to say, I trust that God's provision is enough for me. And so the question for you and for me today is, where do you need to see God's provision? Where do you need to see God's provision? One of the questions we're wrestling with here as a community at Jericho is the challenge of a future facility that'll give us a long-term ministry footprint in this area. And we believe that God's opening up doors for us and making a way for us to walk into things like that. But friends, it's a big challenge. It's a big challenge. And we are gonna need to see God's provision for us in miraculous and incredible ways in order for that to come to fruition. Corporately, individually, financially, in every way. It's a big challenge. And so one of the things we need you to do as a community is just commit to prayer. As we come into our time together on August 12th, where we're gonna uh, give you some more updates and news about that. Like just put a reminder in your phone to pray every day. Hey God, would you provide for Jericho in ways that are lavish and generous? Make sure you put a reminder in your phone to come and join and we'll pray together on the 12th because there's a lot at stake for us in this conversation, in this season. We just need to see God's provision. 
Because I'll tell you, when we sit around the table with our future facilities team and our elders team, we are not saying, oh yeah, we got this totally figured out. All the boxes checked, we are, we are ready to go on this. Like, we need to see God's provision for us as a community. And so we need to pray together as a community around that. Maybe for you in your area of life, it's in your relationships. Maybe a son or a daughter has walked away from God and you're asking God, God, I need you to provide a pathway home for them. Maybe you need to see God's provision in the area of finances for you. Maybe you need to see God's provision in the area of housing. Maybe you're a student. You're going into a new school or a new classroom this year and that freaks you out. And you're just saying, God, I need you to provide friends for me. I need uh, you to, to calm my fears. I don't know what you need, but the scripture reminds us that a lot of times we don't experience God's provision in our lives simply because we don't ask for it. You have not because you ask not. And sometimes when you come, you ask, but there's not really faith behind it exercise that level of faith. Just say, God, this is what I need. Ask others to stand with you in that journey. I'm gonna invite the worship and song team to come and they're gonna lead us in two songs of response that declare our intention in this. And our prayer teams are gonna make their way uh, to the back today. That's gonna be Katie and it's gonna be Miriam, and I'll be back there as well. And James chapter one reminds us about an important aspect of our life and our journey of faith together, and reminds us about the character of God. And says this, you know, when you ask God for wisdom, when you come to God and you say, God, I need something from you, God doesn't judge you for that and say, oh, here you are again asking for wisdom. Seriously, I just gave it to you two days ago. You're coming and praying about this thing again? God says no. Scripture says in James 1, no. God doesn't find fault. Instead, he actually gives it to us generously, liberally. He pours it out and it keeps coming and coming and coming. And when this widow asked Elisha, I need help, I'm sure she would have been satisfied if the miracle resulted in just her debts being paid off. But we see in this encounter that God's incredibly generous towards us when we ask. And this is not to say that God's some kind of magic genie in the sky, gives you everything you ever wanted. That's not what this is about. But this is to remind us that one of the foundational character qualities of God is God's generosity. And then God actually invites and gives us the opportunity as individuals to reflect his heart and his character for the world. God's invitation to us as a community is to experience his generosity and then to pour it out to a world that needs to see that God is loving and kind and generous. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we come to you today in confidence for the world in which we live is your world. It's brought into being through your love for all of your people. And as we bring our concerns before you and make our needs known to you, we believe in faith that you are waiting to hear us and respond. So Lord, I pray that you would teach us all how to provide for our own lives, mindful of our needs, yet also the call of Christ to put our trust in you. Help us spend our time and our money in a manner that is worthy of the kingdom of love. 
And Lord, would you make this church, make your church a place of generosity where people love and work together, giving all that they are and all that they have so that the wonderful resources of our world can be shared. And so we declare again this morning, God, our trust and our faith and our confidence in you. You are our source, you are our provider, and we love you. Amen. We're gonna worship together, and so you're free to stand as you like. You're free to sit. You can move to the back, and people will pray with you as our team leads us in two songs of response.